you can't really understand cyber warfare and cyber attacks without understanding the human element. And someone ended up hacking me. Printers were just as frustrating in like 1994 as they are now. <laughs> I designed hacker culture A to Z, partly around my ADHD. Mm. Who says tech can't be human? What's going on, Hacker Valley fam? Welcome back to the show. Our guest this episode is a cybersecurity legend, someone that you've probably heard of. Maybe you read some of their books, seen some of their blogs. Our guest this episode is Kim Crawley. Kim is a cybersecurity researcher, consultant, blogger, and author. Kim has a new book dropping in January titled Hacker Culture A to Z, A Fun Guide to the Fundamentals of Cybersecurity and Hacking. You can already pre-order it on Amazon, so be sure to check that out. But most importantly, Kim, Welcome to the podcast. I'm really honored to be here, Ron. Wow, a legend already. <laughs> I, I'm flabbergasted. Sure. Thank you. Um, actually, book publication, the book publication biz can be complicated. I, the book production process is complicated. This book, especially Agriculture A to Z, not only is it a format that O'Reilly doesn't work with very often, so even my editors had to figure out what's going to be the editing process for this book, but it's made the production process kind of complex. Let's just put it that way. So Amazon might be saying January 2024, but my publisher tells me November 2023. Oh, even better. Sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've already been reading it on the O'Reilly platform. For anyone that wants to just dig into it, definitely will recommend checking that out. Um, but let's start with the really the name of the book. It's about hacker culture. But before jumping into all of the, you know, what made you write the book and whatnot, uh, maybe you could share with the audience a bit about what was your first experience or exposure into the hacking community? Yeah, I guess it's, it happened in phases. Computers, when I was a really little kid, like when my age was in the single digits, seemed like a bit of a forbidden fruit. And it seemed like I didn't have my own personal computer as a child. And smartphones weren't a thing when I was a child. And uh, I felt like I had to fight grown-ups for access to computers whenever, whenever I could possibly get the opportunity. But like from toddlerhood, Computers fascinated me. I had an older half-brother named Anthony. He was about 15 years older than me. And he had a Commodore 64. And I remember I was four years old, so it was 1988, and the Commodore 64 was still considered to be current tech. Yep. And I was I think that was the first computer I ever laid my eyes on. And I was fascinated by it so much. I was on the internet early. So the Crawley household, we, we got our first Windows PC, which is a Windows 3.1 OEM. Mm -hmm. I think that was 1993. And it was because my dad's Smith Corona electronic typewriter needed a new daisy wheel. And 
my dad tried to go to all these stores trying to find a replacement daisy wheel and couldn't find them because electronic typewriters were on the way out. Hmm. And so everyone was telling him, go get a Windows PC. So eventually we bought, like, well, my parents bought, like, a Windows 3.1 OEM. And it was, like, 1993. And my dad bought a printer, and these were the tools that he needed for his writing job. And then a couple of years later, we had Internet access. I think Prodigy Online was our first ISP. Oh. Our household was special because my parents got a phone line just for the internet. Oh, way ahead of your yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> that's big luxury in like 1995. Yeah. I love that you mentioned, you know, your parents when you talk about the story of your earliest memories. Like one of my mom's most fond memories is me coming home when I was a kid and saying, I'm in love. And she was like, okay, you know, who did my son meet? You know, you met someone special. Who who are they? And I was like, it's the computer. I'm in love with the computer. I want to be online all day. And really part of the reason why I was so in love with it, because I was always on AOL Instant Messenger. And me and my friends, we would join, we would chat, we would join chat rooms. And someone ended up hacking me. They sent me a file through AOL uh, using direct message. It was a feature for everyone that knows. And uh, it was a tool called ProRat. And that was like my <laughs> first exposure into the game. I, I was obsessed. Um, but like, you know, looking back on, you know, your early life, maybe teens or adulthood, what was that first step that you had into like actually being hands on, feeling like you had power in the, the digital space? Yeah, yeah. Uh we had one PC in the 90s, and my dad would spend like probably 30 plus hours a week writing on it because that was oh, wow. his job. He was a full time novelist at that point. And, uh, but when, as soon as he was off the PC, I could use the PC however much I wanted, as long as I didn't touch daddy's files. Yeah. Eventually, we started installing so many things in those operating systems that the boot time would get really slow. <laughs> And I remember exploring the system files in Windows 3.1 and eventually, like, looking through all of them, finding autoexec.bat. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know how I learned to do it, but I eventually, like, I opened that notepad. And without knowing the syntax or anything like that, like Windows scripting languages, I was still able to figure out, oh, this is a list of exes that load when we boot up Windows. And we don't, I can get rid of this line, so this exe and that exe and that other one doesn't load at, at, at boot up. Mm -hmm. And those applications will still be there if you want to manually execute those programs. And so then I made those changes to autoexec.bat, and I don't think that file has existed since Windows 95. It definitely wasn't like a Windows NT thing, right? And my dad was so impressed when the computer booted up the next time and it booted up so much faster. It wasn't trying to load like 30 different programs in the boot process. And that was probably my first hack. I bet at that moment, your dad was your dad and probably the, you, your parents and your brother were like, Kim is the person for everything technology related. I remember I used to be the one that has to set the DVD player, VHS. Anything that had a wire, like they were like, all right, Ron, here you go. This is now your job. Was that the same for you? <laughs> yeah, my dad would have printer issues sometimes. Yeah. 
I I do remember like at nine years old looking at the manuals that came with the printer and all that. And oh, okay, so the problem is it's not this printer is not associated with LPT1. And it wasn't, I don't consider it a hack because I was reading the instructions in the manual. And it would be a paper printed manual and all thick and stuff to get the printer to communicate properly in Windows. And yeah, whenever my, sometimes I, I don't remember what would happen, but the printer driver would still be in Windows, but the printer would stop being associated with LPT1 or whatever. And I would, every time I would bring up the manual and fix it for daddy so that, you know, the printer could communicate with Windows again. Sounds a lot like cybersecurity technology. Like <laughs> it, it's supposed to work a certain way, but you almost have to be like next level inception to figure out how the documentation, you need to read it and how to implement. And then what happens when you hit a, when you hit an issue? <laughs> Printers were just as frustrating in like 1994 as they are now. <laughs> Except what's really cool is last year I bought my very first wireless printer and it was, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit this. The printer that I bought last year was the first printer I'd ever had in my personal possession since like the early 2000s. So I got like a really good quality, like $600 brother laser printer. Because if you're going to get a printer, you might as well go go all out and get the nicest one you can. Right. Especially this one had all kinds of good reviews on Amazon. And it was such a novelty to me that there were none of those like old fashioned printer cords or anything like that. It's all like through my home Wi-Fi. And... I just love now, like, laying with my phone in bed. Oh, I, I'll print that. And just print it from my phone. And, yeah. And or, like, both my laptop and my phone are all, like, networked with the wireless printer. And, yeah, it's no big deal to people who are used to wireless printers. But when your previous experience with printers was, like, 1999... The idea that I could be in the bathroom on my phone and be like, oh, I want to print that. <laughs> it's, it's still pretty fucking cool. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I do the same all the time. I print for my phone. I, I literally just printed something a little bit ago for my phone. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about the book, um, Hacker Culture, A to Z. What was the driving force that made you want to write a book about culture you know, you see so many books on like how the technology works. Why culture? That's a good question. Our technology is designed by human beings. I mean, maybe we're getting to a point now where technology will be more and more designed by AI. But who originally developed the AI? Human beings. Exactly. Right. I hope AI doesn't completely replace us. <laughs> I'd rather uh, speak to a human host than some simulated AI host. But I have had some interesting discussions with ChatGBT. <laughs> but the point is, there are a lot of like STEM lords who think that you know science and technology and and engineering and mathematics those are those are pure and those are rational, and the arts and humanities and culture and all that stuff that that's for the wimps. You know, why are you going to school? to study sociology and psychology 
You know, the real sciences are physics and computer science. But everything affects everything else. You know, our computers are not capable of being irrational, Mm-mm. but every single human being is irrational and unpredictable and psychology applies to us and all that. And it does impact the way we design technology. And there is a culture around computing, as you know. And, you know, the, the, the body of my work for the past, like, 15 years or more has always been to try and make technology more accessible to the masses. A lot of the times I'm writing for a really technically proficient audience. Like, I've written military contractor white papers and stuff like that. But a lot of the stuff that I've been paid to write has also been to try and make technology more approachable for ordinary people. Right. And even if I'm writing for a highly technical audience, like people with computer science PhDs and stuff like that, you still got to make the ideas digestible for people. So one thing that a lot of lay people don't understand about cybersecurity is that it, it is really important to understand the technicalities you know, being able to do computer programming and, st- and software engineering and stuff like that is can be very useful. But it's very much a human domain as well. Right. Right. Like cyber attackers have human motives for money or for glory or for hacktivism. Cybersecurity is a phenomenon that's born out of human beings and our strengths and our weaknesses and, and our faults and, and our emotions. You know, cyber attacks are emotionally driven, you know. You, know, you deploy ransomware or ransomware. I love your sweatshirt, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> De- deploy ransomware. People want people want to make money. I like that's a practical need, but I mean it's probably an emotionally driven one for a lot of ransomware gangs and whatnot. Activism is definitely emotionally motivated. You're uh hacking for your political views, right? Mm-hmm. You can't really understand cyber warfare and cyber attacks without understanding the human element. That's a fact. That is a fact. We have some news to share with you, a member of the Hacker Valley Media family. As of 2023, we became a full-time independent cybersecurity media company, and we're committed to bringing you the most powerful thought-provoking stories in the field of cybersecurity. And we learn we can't do it alone. We'd love to invite you to our exclusive Patreon community where we host a monthly mastermind where you can meet like-minded individuals in the field of cybersecurity that are trying to be more creative and be the best version of themselves that they can be. We would love if you took a second and visited patreon.com forward slash Hacker Valley Studio and we'll see you in the mastermind. One of the unique things that I loved about your book, especially after like reading a bit of it in the early release, is there's definitions, then there's people, and then there's ideas. And I think that's a great mix to describe culture. Like you have to have things that the culture is really interested or in love with. And then there's the people and then the culture. And then there's also the ideas. Uh, when I was scrolling through the chapters, I saw that there was some stuff on AI, even ChatGPT. I was like, okay, bravo. This is a future-proof book. 
Um, but I also scrolled to the Q section and I saw quantum. That's like an area that I've always been fascinated with. Haven't done much research. What has been, I guess, your experience after writing the book with like where cybersecurity is in the space of quantum? That's a good question. Um, I've seen evolutions in cyber attacks in, in my career. Like I've been doing this sort of writing and research work for about 15 years now. As a technician, maybe a little bit longer. One of the ways that I've seen, and this is a very particular thing, ransomware, for instance. I remember the earlier forms of ransomware. A lot of people, like if you ask them when was the first ransomware, they'll probably say it was like in 2015 or something like that, or shortly before WannaCry in 2017 or whatever. But I know very well that ransomware has existed since the late 90s. And the first ransomware I ever saw was before Bitcoin. So like Bitcoin came out in 2009 and that was the very first cryptocurrency, right? And a lot of people would just assume because all ransomware demands ransoms and cryptocurrency. So they think that there couldn't have been ransomware before 2009 because wouldn't it be pretty foolish for cyber criminals to be demanding their ransoms in a way that law enforcement can track easily. But ransomware did exist before 2009 because I was working as a desktop technician in 2008. And I remember just ordinary Windows consumers getting ransomware Hmm. and the ransomware would demand a credit card number. Now it's much riskier for the cyber criminal to demand a credit card number because the cops can trace it easily. And the bank can shut it down and whatnot, but they still did it. So when, you know, when Bitcoin came out in 2009 and all these other cryptocurrencies like Monero and whatnot came out shortly after, that was a real boon and an aid to cyber criminals. And it probably made ransomware a lot more common because there was a lot less danger involved for the attacker. But it did exist before 2009. And now, like, This trend where ransomware is now mainly a problem for enterprise computers, right? Like now your your average consumer is unlikely to be infected with ransomware. Now the targets are like institutions and big corporations and schools and hospitals and businesses and whatnot, like the enterprise market. Because, you know, if, if, an ordinary person, their PC or their iPhone or whatever is struck by ransomware. You know, the cyber criminal, if they're lucky, might be able to get a few hundred bucks out of them. Right. But if you ransomware attack, you know, a public utility, you could you could uh, get possibly millions of dollars out of them. When you look at the space of quantum, like, what do you see and how is that related to ransomware? Yeah, IBM has known about the the cyber risks related to quantum computing for a long time. And IBM has been a major driver in the development of quantum computing. Like now, if you are a big enterprise with a lot of money to burn, you can go to IBM and you can you can you can have like quantum computing services out of them. So at the same time, developing this technology, they're aware that when quantum computers get in the hands of cyber criminals, 
it's going to make easy work out of all of our binary cryptographic technologies. Yeah. So for the past several years now, they've been developing what what is often called quantum safe cryptography. Mm -hmm. So quantum safe cryptography is conducted with binary computers, but whatever fancy math is involved, it is a lot more difficult for a quantum computer to crack than, say, RSA, for instance. The NIST has been working with IBM on this, and for the past several years, a bunch of cryptographers have, have submitted their own quantum-safe computing standards to be approved, and some of them are already starting to be deployed. Like I love the Signal app, for instance. Yeah. And yeah. one of the most recent updates to Signal is the implementation of a quantum-safe algorithm. So it's inevitable, like maybe it's already happened that quantum computing will fall in the hands of cyber criminals. So it's really reassuring that like Signal, for instance, now has quantum safe cryptography. Right. And you know, and I know that that doesn't mean that there's zero risk that it'll be cracked. But like a quantum computer could probably crack like a 128-bit RSA implementation in seconds. So if you can make it take a quantum computer days or weeks or years, then you know you might as well direct that quantum computer to start cracking some binary, not quantum-safe ciphers instead. Right. Yeah, you want to make it as difficult as possible. <laughs> you want to just discourage because there's really no way to make something impossible as much as we wish that we could as cybersecurity practitioners, but, you know, making it disadvantageous. Um, and, you know, we're speaking about quantum. We got to speak about AI as well. Can't go too far, too long without talking about AI, at least a little bit. You know, you had some mentions in your book about AI, but I would love to hear, you know, what is your perspective on the state of AI and cybersecurity? And what are you seeing as like places where we might go? Like your average pen tester, has like a bunch of exploit scripts that they have access to. They might need to start also deploying scripts that have a sophisticated AI behind them, like a GPT engine behind it. Mm -hmm. Because if cyber criminals are going to start using more powerful AI more and more often, then that's something that pen testers are going to have to consider using in their pen tests. So that's one thing I can think about. We can probably learn by testing AI simulations of cyber exploits how to security harden our computing systems from AI a little better. Right. Uh, I think of AI as like fire, right? Like fire has a lot of good uses and it can also be very dangerous. And it's all dependent on how you, how you use it. But I, I don't think... You know, you can make AI illegal or anything. Like, we've had AI in some form or another since the 1960s. Right. But there are a lot of ethical issues with, you know, AI replacing people's jobs. And, like, the WGA in Hollywood just uh, had a major fight over AI because the big fat cats in Hollywood wanted to replace script writers with AI script writing. Right. So we're going to have to find a way 
so that people aren't put out of work, but we can benefit from more sophisticated AI. Yeah, I think it's all about, you know, man and machine working together. That's what it's always been about when you look back, you know, especially when you were first getting started in the game in the 80s and 90s. A lot of things were done through uh, telephony. And now that's one area of bandwidth that we try to avoid, even on our mobile phones. We don't hook up using RJ11 to our landlines anymore. It's just not as efficient. And I see the same thing with what we're doing in technology, even in our work today. A lot of the tasks that I take on a day-to-day basis are very manual. They're tedious. And I wouldn't really ask someone else to do it because it's no fun for me. So why would I want someone else? I see the future, one component of it being using AI agents. I've been seeing a lot of work being produced and introduced uh, on agents, how to connect uh, AI models up together, especially large language models together. So you can get them to carry out some of those really mundane and tedious tasks like proofreading, but from three different perspectives. Give me the perspective of a comedian. Give me the perspective of someone that's professional and give me the perspective of my previous writing and help me kind of come up with ideas to get to the the, uh, reader a little bit more clearly. Yeah. If if AI can take a lot of the tedious work of everyday lives more and more, that, that would be great. Um, you know, the, the definitions of AI and machine learning and all that can, can be very broad, right? I mean, for instance, someone working in a security operations center, they are not manually looking at the logs on every single networking device at all times. There is, you know, seams are driven by AI, AI, like security information event management systems. Yep. They are driven by AI, and they're trying to make sense out of all the logs that are being fed into them and looking for signs of possible cyber attacks and whatnot. And it would not be fair to expect a bunch of humans to be doing that much tedious work. We still have a human being in the SOC who's sitting at their desk and looking at a bunch of panels. And when the AI in the scene detects that something looks funny, something looks anomalous, will bring the human being's attention to it so they can investigate. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of how automation and AI can take a lot of the tedium out of our lives. And it might not even really be humanly possible for one person to like look at all those logs and make sense out of every single log event. It just it just wouldn't be reasonable. So the most important thing, I mean, I've had a lot of fun playing with ChatGBT and with Dolly. I have yes. paid for Dolly. I've been like, it's so much fun generating all these pictures of all these ideas that I'm coming up with. Oh, I got to buy another $30 worth of credits. Okay, well, this is fun. <laughs> I'll keep doing it, right? I might even... You know, when it, once it becomes available, like sign up for a paid version of ChatGPT, right? Just yeah. And I had so much fun with ChatGPT. Like my romantic partner, he's a huge Star Wars fan. He also grew up in a town called Stratford, Ontario, which is famous for its Shakespeare festival. Oh, okay. The town is named after where Shakespeare came from, Stratford. So I just thought, hmm, I'm thinking about my partner here. Okay, um... Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope in the style of William Shakespeare. And I gave that query to ChatGPT. And ChatGPT, of course, won't write a whole book for you, at least not the free version. 
it'll give you like a couple of thousand words. Yep. And I was just like, my mind was blown. Like, yeah, this is exactly, you know, Star Wars in the style of Shakespeare's writing. Powerful. The, the tech is crazy. You know, with all of the things that it can help us with from taking out the tedious activities of our lives, I feel like it also brings a lot of distraction. I've never been more distracted in my life than right now with all the tech and notifications around me. And speaking of notifications, uh, one notification I got from you on Twitter was a post. I think you talk about this pretty regularly, but the fact of having ADHD. Um, and I think that's yeah. something that people have been speaking about more is like, you know, what makes them very different or a little different than others. And I think that's one thing that I would imagine really demands balance out of your life. Um, what's been, I guess, like your experience working in cybersecurity, but also um, facing the challenges of ADHD? I think one of the reasons why I'm so successful now is because I work from home. Like I don't have a boss breathing down my neck. <laughs> The people I work for know that I'm doing my work because they can see my emails and they can see the various databases that I'm communicating with and whatnot. They can see that I'm producing work. So in an environment where your bosses can see that you're you're doing work, but they're not monitoring you. Mm -hmm. That's like like I think micromanagement is like really, really bad for people with ADHD. I, I really benefit from being macro-managed. Mm. Like, and what does that mean me exactly? Alone, leave me to my own devices. And I think if I was in a conventional like office workplace, I remember once when I was like in my late 20s, I was briefly in an open office sort of situation. That was hell. Those open are the worst. Those is, are the worst yeah. for everybody. Who can get stuff done if someone takes a phone call? <laughs> exactly. So I, I and I was fired from that job pretty quickly. And I think it's because the open office, it's bad for everyone and especially bad for people with ADHD. Mm -hmm. I designed hacker culture A to Z, partly around my ADHD. Mm. I think the largest sections in that book are like three pages. And a lot of the sections are only a page long. And I think the book is like a little over 300 pages. But if you break up a 300 plus page book into like 300 different sections, then it's not like you got to sit down and write a 300 page book. It's a lot less overwhelming because instead of thinking, oh, I got to write a 300 page book now, it's like, okay, no, today I'm going to write this section and that section, and the other section. And each of these sections are like a page or two or three. And it's a lot less overwhelming that way. So the book concept came to me because I've written a couple of books before and I thought, what would be a book concept that would be very ADHD friendly? And it might be ADHD friendly for readers, too, because you don't have to read the book in any particular order. You can read it backwards or like randomly select a letter and read from there or or just like, you know, read it on the toilet and just be like, okay, I'm just, oh, I'm going to read it from the tease now and whatnot. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I opened it up and I was like, all right, you know, I'm, I was cooking at the moment. I was like, all right, I want to at least read a little bit right now. And I was able to get through a whole page, well, a whole chapter just by kind of scrolling and seeing just the ideas narrowing in on the ones that I was most interested in and like the ones that I wasn't, you know, keep going. And then like, oh, here's another piece in A. 
Now let me go to B. Let me see what's going on there. What is Bash? Oh, snap. All right. Great. And then you kind of keep on going. So I think that's a really awesome approach. I think that you're going to probably see more people adopt that style. It almost reminds me of when people started adopting the style of getting the feedback from the experts in the field. Uh, Tim Ferriss had a tribe of mentors. And then in cybersecurity, there was tribe of hackers. And then uh, Christina Marillo's book. But I, I really like this framework because you get to talk about the people, topics, ideas, definitions, all of that. Yeah. And you don't get bored. I mean, if you get bored quickly, you know, you only have to think about a particular topic for a couple of pages and then we can move <laughs> on to the next topic. Yeah. And it's really cool too. A lot of the organizing work has been done by my editor, like Sarah Gray, for instance, my development editor at O'Reilly. And so I basically wrote all the sections, but she did the tedious work of, oh, this concept, this entry could be related to these other entries. So I think it's in the O'Reilly subscription version that you've read. Yep, that's right. And it will definitely be in the print version as well. Now, if you look at the entries, it will say this concept is related to these other concepts. And so now you can explore all these ideas and how they're connected with each other. So for instance, like there's an entry on Microsoft, but you might want to read the entry on Bill Gates after that. I've actually been working on a book proposal as well. Um, I'm going to be submitting it today, pretty much right after this. So it's perfect timing that I'm speaking to you. And I get asked a lot. We have a, a creative mastermind that we host every month. I'll drop the link into the description for anyone that's interested in checking it out. Um, but we have creators and creatives in cybersecurity that come on and they talk about uh, some of their challenges, some of their hopes and goals. And everyone on this mastermind has said that they at some point want to write a book. You know, so for <laughs> anyone that's listening, anyone that's in our mastermind, what would be that one piece of advice that you have for them to get one step closer of realizing that dream of becoming an author? Yeah, start, start. Start slow, but write often, right? So if you've never written anything professionally before, don't overwhelm yourself by telling yourself you're going to write a three or 400 page book. I don't need to make writing goals for myself because I've been doing this for so long. Mm -hmm. People ask me, do you set a goal for yourself for how many words you write each day? And I say, no, I, I will write however many words people are paying me to write that day. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're not in a habit of constantly writing, it might help you to start by setting a goal for yourself. I'm going to write 500 words or 1,000 words each day. Mm -hmm. 500 to 1,000 words is a reasonable goal for most people, as long as you're not super busy, right? right. So make your, give yourself the goal. I'm going to write 500 to 1,000 words each day, or I'm going to write like 3,000 to 7,000 words a week. And, and just do it. And don't, don't criticize your work too much. I think sometimes people freeze up because they're judging and censoring themselves before they get anything down in the word processor. Just, just relax and just Put your ideas onto, you know, Microsoft Word or whatever application you use and tell your, remind yourself that if you write a sentence or two and you write it all wrong and the grammar's all wrong and the punctuation's all wrong and all that, 
that can all be changed easily later. The most mm -hmm. important idea when you start is just to get your words onto the screen. And one of the mm -hmm. worst things for me in my ADHD is to, like, I like to use LibreOffice Writer, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's a boot up LibreOffice Writer, and then there's like a blank document. If you stare at a blank page for too long, you're going to go nuts. <laughs> so I always tell myself, put in some, put some words in there. Because when I'm working on a document and some parts of the document are already written, it's way easier. You're way less overwhelmed. There's already a structure for you to fill in, like a jigsaw puzzle, and you've got like a lot of the pieces combined already. Don't worry too much about the editing. Just get your words down. Sound advice. <laughs> Just get started. Take it one piece at a time. That's the best way to move Mount Everest anyways. That's what a book feels like at times, I'm sure. Kim, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to jump on the mics with me and talk all about hacker culture. Uh, for anyone that's listening that wants to stay connected with Kim, drop down into the show notes. You can find her social media handles, but also a link to her book on Amazon. Be sure to pre-order that now. And with that, we will see everyone next time.